You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Perth Property Show. Beautiful Monday morning and we are turning our attention to a broader spectrum of investment today, financial advice, financial planning. Obviously, property is a big part of a financial planner's advice piece. Not always where they focus, but they always have to obviously deal with it in terms of most of their clients, us, we've got property and it's part of the portfolio. It's part of the diversification and with what's been going on the last few months with super, with the share market going up and down, uh, with property going left and right, I thought it'd be a good idea to get uh, one of my good friends, Damon Sugden, into the studio for his first episode. So he might be a little nervous, but I'm sure this will be one of many, Damon, uh, to have a chat about just that environment over the last few months. Mate, thanks for coming in. Thanks for the invite. Good to be here representing Capital Partners. Damon, where should we start? I think uh, for me, I want to start back in the same way we've, we've spent some time looking at finance and building and valuations in a sort of a pre-COVID to post-COVID uh, look as to how it's affected your industry and your advice piece. We're not obviously looking at any direct advice today or even general advice. We're just just a commentary on how's the landscape been for you since you know maybe February it's been so interesting and I think we need to wind the clock back even prior to February because the calendar year 2019 was just outstanding for, for capital markets the, the the type of returns we saw were so rewarding for people who had put their their money in, into the markets and as, I guess against the West Australian property market even more so absolutely and especially when we even extend beyond the Australian share market the types of returns we saw when you reach out overseas were, were really very strong. So and you're talking about shares or broader like things like um, Forex and commodities and all those sort of things? Well, all those things overlay, uh, I guess, we're always looking at from what the investment strategy needs to look like from a broader overall financial strategy. So all of those things come into play, but they're probably not the main, main focus from what we're, we're looking at, but they are absolutely required to be considered. Uh, but the, these returns we saw in 2019 were just outstanding. And it was important at that stage to address, well, look, we've been on a really good wick at the last 12 months. It's time to look at the plan, reset the plan. Are these returns going to continue? Possibly. Are they sustainable? Are they sustainable? Or is it likely at some stage there is going to be some sort of event that will rock markets? And History the answer repeats is always... Itself, doesn't it, it does. It's funny we call them black swan events, but... After so many seven to ten year cycles we've gone through in history, how can I be black swan? It's like surely someone who's been in the market for three or four cycles, like yourself, as you just alluded to, is going. Yeah, we're in. We're clearly in a boom market. We're about seven to ten years from the last crash. Get ready for the next unrecognizable black swan event. That's Isn't right. that interesting? And it's so hard to do because you're at the the peak of optimism right at that stage. You're saying mm. no, the the sentiment, the feeling is. This is the new normal. This is how it's going to continue on for the foreseeable future. When it's really then you need to take stock and potentially look at taking profits in line with your plan and and banking those profits ready for that rainy day, which is hard hard? to do when you're on a winning streak. It's hard, isn't it? It's It's when do you cash out the chips at the casino? It it is, and it requires discipline. And if you've got a plan, a broader plan, that encompasses your broader goals to refer back to and almost acts like a, a bit of a mandate, a rule book Parameters. for yourself. Yeah, yep. exactly right. And you play to those rules, you're not going to get blown up. Greed doesn't come into it anymore. It's going, yeah, we've ticked our boxes. Now it's time to uh, reset. 
that cliche or, or um, characteristics of the the great Australian in, in investor is is buy at the uh, buy at the top and sell at the bottom. You know yeah. the, the fear and greed going against us. When you really need to buck the trend and have the discipline to do the opposite. Isn't that that great saying that Warren Buffett had of be Even, fearful yeah. when people are greedy and greedy when people are fearful. Absolutely. That's what a financial advisor is there to do. Exactly. Is to help that. That's right. That help that uh, ideology along. Provide that decisions matrix. Provide that external objective view on the markets, on your portfolio, on your strategy. Because personally, we're looking at our own portfolio, property, share market, bond market, whatever it is. We're emotionally invested in that. Yeah. And those emotions can really distort our decision-making ability. So having an objective view, someone to hold yourself accountable and accountable to your plan mm. can really add value. Even the most pragmatic person, we're all human beings. We all have ego. We all have uh, a level of narcissism, uh, most of us at least, uh, and we all have greed. They're, these are all sins of ours that, that, that have pushed through thousands and thousands of years. They're not going to go away. We are only the, human. Exactly right. So that's what that advice piece is for. So what you're saying is we had a, a generally a fantastic uh, global market in 2019, and then you're saying, look, things are starting to get a bit hot, regardless, and this is pre-COVID, right? And then obviously a non-financial shock came into the market, which had financial and is having financial ramifications. Yeah, so the, the, the thinking in markets was there's going to be something, but what's it going to be? And it certainly came from, from left field. Who would have mm. thought a global pandemic in our modern times would occur but again to your point history repeating it's happened before spanish flu come comes to mind in the early 1900s and interesting to, to see how far we've or haven't come from I, I did some reading around that and what people are doing did then to mitigate a transmission of that and it was stay home wear a mask mm. what are we doing today later, what are we there. doing today yeah. 100 years later yeah. stay home and Very wear primal. a mask yeah yeah so that clearly has made your phone go off the hook I would have thought people were asking, what should we do? So interesting. It was quite the opposite effect to what I thought might happen in terms of new clients coming on board because all of a sudden people are sitting at home and they're getting to that to-do list of things they'd always intended to get to, get to looking at their estate plan, their financial plan. So all of a sudden, we're really busy engaging new clients. But in terms of our existing clients, 2019, end of 2019, we were having the conversation of saying, hey, these markets aren't going to continue it forever. We're suggesting we take some profits, bank that in line with your, your plan to the more defensive portion of, of your portfolio. And if and when this event happens, we are going to do X, Y, and Z. So the plan was already laid out really clearly. So when they got the phone call um, mid-March there, they already knew why we were calling. They knew exactly the, the plan of action that was going to be taken. So they had uh, an element of anticipation. So there's no surprises for them as to what was next. And maybe again, I'm getting on my soapbox, but that value of having that objective view and mapping out the, the plan ahead in both good and bad markets is really important for your psyche. Isn't it interesting, though, that a lot of us probably were a bit surprised that, uh, well, we're not surprised at the market shock in terms of values pulled out of the market from February through to the end of March, but how strongly a lot of equities have pulled back into profit massive some of these shares that i've been looking at 500 time return since the 23rd of march it seems like around the world the 23rd of march march was the turning point in at least in the equities space and if, if you pulled out around then and you know, selling when it when it was low fearing it was going to keep going lower then you've missed out on a lot of returns going the other way one thing that i guess it's that i've always struggled with with regards to shares and equities in general is how live the change in values is compared to property. 
my brain doesn't work that fast, Damon. <laughs> I can't keep up with the minute by minute, second by second change in values. And then there's not a change in values, it's a change in perception of value because things don't change in value every minute. It's the way people obviously trade those things. So that really live event of the change in people's superannuation value or share portfolio value, that would have had, and, I'm, and I've seen it personally, has had effect on people's decisions to buy and sell property. So for example, we were looking at a property in, uh, in Warwick that... Uh, we were pretty much ready to go, had an offer on the table with the seller, and that was in March. Now, as every day went on, that seller who was looking to then downsize out of their property to a property in Dianella has lost about $100,000 in the space of the week of negotiations that we've gone through and has decided to not sell their property anymore because they wouldn't have had the money to be able to do what they wanted to do and that's downsize with the total sure. of, of the yep. money of the sale of, of the property and the super because of non-property factors has affected their property decision. Right. I wonder whether that has come up with you guys, that has come to the surface with you as whether out of property factors has affected people's decisions to either buy or sell property or at least seek advice from you on that. Yeah, interesting because the, the, it's easy with the share market because you've got this large pool of investors. It's an, an aggregate of the total market sentiment is reflected in current prices. Mm. So you, you'll be hearing, and to your point affecting on property decisions, you're hearing economic data which is looking in the rear vision mirror, whereas the share market is looking forward of what we can expect in the future. So that turning point in March was, okay, maybe this thing isn't going to be as bad as we can apply some money to capital markets again. Mm. But in terms of the property decisions, it does hit you psychologically and there's just a feeling of, of unrest and then you don't have the confidence to go ahead and, and spend that cash on the renovation, buy that property, commit to that downsize. Absolutely. But if you've got a longer term view and you've got a good insight into your broader plans and, and strategy, hopefully that can give you some confidence. If you're just looking at whether it be you know, share market investment or property transactions in isolation, that's really hard to, to get your head around in uncertain times. But if you've got a bigger picture, a broader picture, and all of those factors are amalgamated into that, that can pay dividends in giving you some confidence to go forward, make an informed decision that yes, we do need to postpone these transactions. One thing that's going on in the property market right now is we've got the lowest number of properties on the market for five years. And uh, we have the highest number of transactions at the same time as that for the last five years, which is it's they're operating in opposite directions, right? So what's happening is people just aren't, what I'm seeing, people aren't putting their property on the market. They're not wanting to sell. And that might be because we run out of people who need to sell and because of the um, the deferral of mortgages, people don't need to sell right now and they're not. And the people that are left over are the ones who have bought around 2013, 2014, 2015 who are trying to get that price sure. back and the market's not there yet. So they're holding out. Um, but we've certainly got more people coming into the market as seen by the transaction numbers. It's continually soaking up that property. I'm trying to figure out what's it going to take for, for example, your clients to come to you and go, we're ready to sell or we're thinking of selling our property. What do you think, Damon? So many wide and different scenarios for each different client. So it's difficult to, to generalize. But to your point of the pricing, uh, that's part of our, you know, us being flawed humans as well, that we, we, can, we have a tendency to anchor to prices. You might uh, recall a, a, a valuation you had on a property at the peak. And that's what you hang on to. That's mm. what you cling on to. And that can really handcuff you to making decisions for your future benefit for yourself if it's part of the plan. Like sometimes we have 
clients who have had significant stores of wealth in property, but maybe the the clock's ticking before they can sell that, liquidate it, and get it into their super account for the most tax-effective long-term outcome for their retirement years. So it can be confronting. Okay, clock's ticking. Valuation isn't what it is. Not a problem. We just reset the plan. Recalibrate your, your plan to account for that drop in value might mean we need to tweak other aspects of your of your plan. Unfortunately, maybe you have to seek higher returns, take take a little bit more, bit more risk if that's in your risk appetite. In other places. Yeah, uh, yep. yeah, absolutely. In d- different markets, uh, go go deeper. Or the asset allocation. Maybe you need to tip a bit more into that growth bucket versus the defensive aspects or adjust your expectations of what your goals need to be. Maybe you, you can't make such a contribution to your, your children's first venture into, into property if that's mm. what you're, you're doing or leaving a legacy or the amount that you actually spend in your latter years. Those are, I guess, aspects of the reality. That's It's dealing with the reality of either if you still want to achieve your goals, you need to push harder, take more risk in other places, which might still be in property, might be in property development rather than in property investment, which is less, you know, sure. a more passive way to invest. Or again, you know, is let's, you know, let's pull out a property, let's sell that property because it ain't going anywhere for the, the foreseeable future, especially as a passive investment. And let's put that into something that's a bit more aggress- aggressive. Yeah, that's, that, that's where you guys come in. It's that blank sheet of paper approach where, sure, I'm holding this property, is, what if you didn't? Yeah. Is that the investment I would go into today yeah, if yep. I was starting with a blank sheet, sheet of paper? If yeah, the answer that's a is fantastic yes, way to look at that's it. That's great. what I always say to clients is this is your current portfolio. Uh, you, you've got no, for example, you've got no serviceability because of all the debt you've got. If I told you you didn't have these properties today, would you go and buy them all again? Most of the time, the answer is no, but people feel hamstrung either by physically by the fact they don't have any equity in their, in their um, portfolio, which if they sold them, they'd have nothing to work with, or just that perception of, oh, my properties are worth this to me, even though they're not worth this to everyone else, therefore I'm not going to sell them. Well, it's like, well, do you want to move forward and achieve something now, or do you just want to let the market do it for you in the next five to 10 years? As one way is taking control of your future, and the other way is being, mm-hmm. again, very passive with your future. Yeah, and and to your point, uh, alluding to the liquidity or the potential illiquidity of property, because property is such a powerful wealth creation tool, but you need to balance it with other more liquid measures or ensuring that you've got ready access to cash. If you're all in the property market, that can be great, very illiquid, or it can back you into into a corner. So have very expensive have sufficient to trade cash on as hand. well, right? Yeah, with shares, you know, you pretty much just sure, buy and sell yeah. them some fees. But with property, the reality is you're paying stamp duty to get in, and you're paying sellers' fees to get out. And with all of this stuff, if you make money, you're paying capital gains. Yeah, no investment is, is can be access cost free, but yeah, I concede to your point that it can be expensive too. I want some um, market perspectives out of you, Damon. Right now, we've got like good fundamental theory but do you have any actual um of your own opinions about how or or perspectives on people who have been calling you and all that about what the actual play the feel the market has been since 2019 you're avoiding that answer yeah i am because i don't have one um i'm quite agnostic about the short-term view on markets and it's more about having a long-term strategic allocation to Uh different asset classes, be it property, share market, or or appropriate level of of fixed interest or or bonds, because we simply don't know which asset class is going to fire next and which one isn't. So if you've got a measured approach to having um, just enough money in each of those asset classes, and you have that discipline to rebalance between them when 
as and when you can, mm. you're constantly exposed. So you're, you're benefiting from being exposed to the, the highest, highest yeah. performer and you're rebalancing to the lowest performer for their turn, turn in the sun. So what I'm looking to hear out of you, Damon, is uh, I guess uh, an, an ear to the floor perspective for us on where your clients' uh, priorities are sitting right now in terms of investment versus divestment of the broader spectrum of their assets, which includes property. Where does property sit in that conversation? Is it the first thing they're talking about? And is it, I want to buy? Or is it, I want to sell? Or is it the last thing they're talking about? Um, I've told you from my perspective where the market is sitting in terms of, for me, I'm struggling to find people trying to sell that I can buy off of and my thoughts on why. Where are your conversations with your clients? Where, where are they leading? A, a lot of our clients' wealth is significantly placed in property. So it is something that we have to be aware of. Naturally, we're not the subject matter experts. That's why we talk to the likes, likes of yourself on that. But it's something we have to factor into their plan. And there's a couple of different scenarios. So we've got the, the property investor. And if there was a planned divestment of that anytime soon, we're seeing the trend is that they are postponing that. Um, Why? Prices just aren't what they can stomach in in releasing it. Okay, uh, that's if, a fair, fair, fair reason. Yep. In contrast to that, though, if they have other investable assets that um, over time are expected to do well, they have confidence to let the property go because they can bank the capital loss and consume that in the future. So with maybe going, look, the property market, the share market's looking better right now. I'm going to sell my property, get the cash out of that and then put it into the share market? They have a good understanding that over the longer term, they will be rewarded for applying their money to, to capital markets. Whereas I don't think they have that optimism in, in Perth property at, at the moment. It's been out in the wilderness for some time, which I'm sure you, could, you can attest to. But could also argue for the um, view of purchasing now because you've got the greatest expected return if prices are so low in property. So Well, yeah, we, greedy when people are fearful. Exactly, back, yeah. back to that point. So we're seeing other people who are looking to get in the market, seizing the opportunity really quite, quite seriously. Um, on the home front, it tends not to matter unless we're looking at the you know, drawdown phase, retirement, retiree clients where they're looking to downsize. Then maybe that's factoring, hampering some of their plans. When we're talking about people's interest in investing into property in the first place do you find that it's because they like the idea that they can feel and touch it or because they believe there's going to be a better investment uh, because they believe it's believe it's less risky or because they understand it more why do people generally come to you and say we want property to be a part of our portfolio for the future what are the motivations i think that tangible aspect something you can feel and touch along with understand people are just so much more familiar with that than some of the the instruments available on other capital markets so that definitely plays plays into it also the perception that prices in these sort of physical assets are more stable your the price on your home or investment property isn't published daily whereas mm. the front page of the news quite often the market's increased by x percent is dropped it's plummeted by x percent. it's an emotional roller coaster absolutely and it's published daily whereas you don't have you know a, an electronic sign at the front of your house saying your house is valued x today yep. you think it's worth what you you paid for it five years ago and that's what you, you're benchmarking against and it gives you a feeling of confidence and stability yeah i like that that's how that's a big reason as to why i focused on property for most of my adult life is because it gives me time to make 
strategic decisions about my investment portfolio without the rug being pulled out from under me and my brain doesn't work that fast as i've said before in episodes is i need time to be able to consider the broader macro market and then drill down into the micro market and once i've done that in property then i can make a really good understanding as to this property on this street with for this reason and most of the time it's obviously it's for development purposes because that's where i see wealth creation in in terms of what i can control okay so we've, we've had that aspect from 2019 a bit of an aspect on what people are thinking with their financial planner about property at the moment going forward what do you think that the advice piece that the uh, diversification mix will be for your clients or west australian clients who also have a, a diversified portfolio where is property going to sit when you sit around the round table with the partners at capital partners where are their perspectives in terms of that general advice piece on how property in western australia right now fits into someone's broader portfolio compared to maybe a year ago Property always forms a significant part of the families that we work with and their wealth. We don't have the expertise to advise on how much and when, but we will certainly guide them in terms of the parameters of their broader plan and what they want to achieve over their life. And incorporating property can have significant payoff and benefits, but coupled with that, you do take on a lot of concentrated risk. So going into those transactions, it's a case of educating yourself to the absolute utmost in liaison with experts like yourself on what they're actually going into. And thinking through the worst case scenario is also just as valuable as looking at the potential of the deal. Great point, yep. Yep. So with property investment, for example, the reality is you go and buy a property, you're already down the amount of stamp duty you just paid. So you buy a house for $500,000, you're down 20 grand. Now, uh, obviously, you've you've taken out probably about four hundred grand in debt to, to do that as well because you put your twenty percent in. So there are benefits to that, obviously, that leverage because with leverage, mm. property is one of the only things you can really leverage like that. Shares you can to an extent with blue chips, but nothing like property. Uh, with leverage, if the market's going the way you hope it to go, with with passive investment at least, you can t- turn a hundred grand into two hundred grand within the space of yeah. a year, doing nothing to it, right? Through leverage, but at the same time. Uh, that hundred grand you put in as a twenty percent deposit, you look at a place like Ellenbrook or, or Bold Arbus over the last five years. If you actually did put twenty percent in, which is rare in those areas, you would have lost it all in that last five years too. So uh, then you're sitting on on debt. That's all you're sitting on. There's no equity at all. With property development, you go even further, right? Uh, you you take on debt. You you build. You create assets. You manufacture wealth. Uh, but if you don't do it right, all you're doing is increasing a, a high level of debt on assets that are pretty much equal to the amount of debt. If you do it well, though, you're making two or $300,000 in a year and a half. That's, I guess, right at the, the top spectrum of the risk profile for, for you guys when you're considering when a client comes to you and says, look, I'm looking at doing a property development. You guys, I guess, consider that. But obviously, again, what is the worst case scenario? What's the worst thing we do? Uh, I think it really comes down to, for me at least, uh, that's how we always look as well. What's the worst case scenario when we go into this development? If the market does punch out or uh, if we get our numbers wrong here, at the very worst that we just didn't make any money, we really want to make sure we're not losing our money in the first place though. That's that's something yeah. where I think property development, if done right, can actually uh, be a less risky thing if you know what you're doing than passive investment because you're in control, you make your decisions, you're not beholden to the market. 
Yeah, I think that contingency planning is really important. And even a bit of scenario modeling, the, the what if scenario, mm. what if prices do plummet? What if interest rates spike? How is that going to affect my life and my mm. lifestyle and my other investment plans? You know, got to consider that. I think we always, regardless of the investment, property, shares, bonds, whatever your, your calling is, have to call back to the principle of the relationship between risk and return. If I buy a property for cash, I'm still exposing my, my money to the market. There is risk. If I'm doing that with gearing, if I'm borrowing, I'm enhancing that, that risk. So I'm taking more risk. I need to expect a greater return at the end of the day. And it doesn't always work out that way. So that scenario modeling, contingency planning should really be encouraged. I like that, Damon. I like the idea of understanding what your cost of capital is, your cost of your of your debt, understanding what's the worst case scenario. For example, if you're going to go and do a triplex and you're expecting to make 200 grand out of it, if you think these units are going to be worth 500 grand each and they end up being worth 430 each, which is a, yeah. you know, it's a big, big mistake to make if you get that wrong, there goes your profit. At least that's your profit going and not the money you put in. But that what it means is that, you know, you, you, what are you doing now with, with that? Do you decide to sell? Do you decide to keep them and use them as positively geared rentals right now? Uh, but the very worst case, that's when you get into development, that's what's happening. If you get it wrong by 10% and you're doing a triplex, that's 10% times three assets. And also the opportunity cost of, of that What as else well? you could have done with that exactly. money in that time? Should I be in a, a different suburb, a different market? Whatever, a different yeah. asset. Yeah, exactly. Damon, thanks for your time, mate. It's been a f- fantastic first chat. I think we've we've gone outside of our spectrum here as to just the last couple of months, but I like the idea of us uh, looking forward and also uh, having those perspectives on worst case scenario, those sort of things, just generally a financial advisor's aspect on property investment itself. So thank you very much. I think we'll have you in a number of times again with some very uh, much more specific aspects about that broader portfolio diversification because whilst it might not be 100% property, it is important to be diversifying your portfolio, even if it's just with money in the bank. And that could be part of your advice piece, you know, generally, I'm sure. Thanks very much for coming in, mate, and we'll have you in soon. Appreciate it, Trent. Thank you. Okay, so we have spotlight time. We are talking about a mainstay blue chip western suburb, suburb today. It is a hospital suburb, a medico suburb. Uh, it is Shenton Park. Across the road from Kings Park, across the road from Perth Children's Hospital. One person I talked to about this, she's been, been in before talking about Daglish. It is Susie Costanzo. Thank you very much for coming in. Oh, you're welcome. Pleasure to be here. Susie, you are Miss Daglish. You're also very prolific around Shenton Park and Subiaco. And I, I wanted to get you in because what you can do for us today is give us a broader aspect, not only on the intricacies, eccentricities of Shenton Park, but also uh, perspective on how that fits in to the broader area and why people might buy in Shenton Park. From your perspective, what makes Shenton Park different to Subiaco and Daglish? What does it offer that the other two suburbs don't? It's a small suburb. So the whole of Shenton Park is basically a two kilometre radius. It has a, a community feel about it. It's more like a, a small town in, in the big city. But it's proximity to Subiaco, Daglish and Jollymont, which are predominantly the areas that I operate in because they're interchangeable. Block sizes vary. Shenton Park has, the average block size is 420 square metres, um, although there are some bigger blocks that haven't been subdivided. But it is it is actually a very small suburb. There's about four and a half thousand residents, but that doesn't translate into four and a half thousand houses. There's about fourteen hundred houses, and then so it's a bit denser than normal. Yeah, is that families or share houses? Well, interestingly enough, the breakdown is they're predominantly thirty-five and 
upwards, 35.49 and 49 upwards. Well, so that has to be price point, right? Exactly. It's not the cheapest suburb. Yeah. So you don't get your first homeowners purchasing there. It's more your established professional families who want to grow their family because of the the Rosalie Primary School and the Shenton College catchment. And then it's also a great downsizer suburb for people coming from, you know, your Nedlands, Dalkeith, bigger bigger blocks down to smaller blocks, uh, more manageable properties and proximity to your hospitals, your train and all your other amenities. I would assume that this is a mostly owner-occupied suburb, not too much rental opportunity here. It is mainly, um, yeah, it's predominantly houses. Um, There is, um, it has a really good rental yield though. So on average, you're looking average 3%, but at the moment you could rent a 320 at $320 a week with a 3.9% rental yield. Hmm. Um, so it is a good investor suburb if you can get in. Yeah, okay. Do you have any fun facts for us, any b- bits of history, any little bits of uniqueness about Shenton Park that listeners might prick their ears up and and think, oh, that was, that was you know, quite an interesting little bit of history? Um, well, it was actually named after Sir George Shenton. He was a prominent businessman. So it's called Shenton Park because... The Shenton family used to own that area of land. Imagine having that as a homestead. I know. I'd love. It. I love the the land today. But in fact, uh, maybe two, three years ago, I actually sold Waverley Cottage, which was the original home of the Shenton family, and that was fabulous because a descendant of the Shenton family also lived there. It was only when I sold it, it then went to someone out of the family. So that that was um, that was a really nice piece of history. Is there a lot of heritage? listed uh, properties in the area then do they do, um, do, do they obviously have an, make an issue when it comes to renovating and things like that not really um there are a few heritage listed properties but not as many as Subiaco yeah okay well, uh, I mean Subiaco is full of them yeah obviously yeah, and f- for yeah. a reason it's a very historical area in that East Subiaco precinct mm. and Shenton Park really is an extension of that isn't it it is but it, it is sort of its own little island you know but I think the thing is it's four kilometers from the Perth CBD as I said it's close to all the hospitals trains got buses it's close to UWA and Kings Park it's proximity to everything so would you suggest that someone living in Shenton Park is someone who is more focused south towards the university towards the hospital towards the western suburbs or are they more focused towards a life in Subiaco and the city? The former, definitely. You know, the amenity is the thing for your downsizers. Walking distance to shops, um, your transport and the hospitals, definitely. Shenton Park is split up across the railway, right? It's, it's one of those interesting facts where it's not just that pocket next to Kings Park, next to the hospital. There's also that pocket uh, north there where there's been, I guess, some land sale from the government and, and some new estates. How does that fit into the mould? It's the area just across Railway Road, bounded by Nash Street, and it's where the old Shenton rehab site used to be. It's been developed now and sold in landlots, and there is some multi-res going in there, and your smaller landlots. How's that been going? Do you see it being a, a thriving sort of community, sort of like the way Churchlands, their redevelopment site of the old TAFE, the old ECU TAFE, you know, picked up, and that was that's turned into a really nice estate? Do you see that's where they're trying to take it, or is it... 
Uh, is, it, is it not so much? I, I'm not sure whether that's where they're trying to take it. You know, things are selling in there. But for me, I think they would have to have more amenity in there because you still have to cross the railway line. There's no shops there. So it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation mm, at the moment. Mm, mm. Yeah. And I, look, I agree. I think um, if you want to be building denser style living there, multi-res especially, you want to have cafe strip you want to have yeah. the local iga or Woolworths yes. very close and, yes, and right. you're probably getting in the car for everything from there aren't you well it depends how how far you like to walk yeah <laughs> <laughs> but that i mean the benefit of shenton park uh, the old style shenton park is that it is very much walking, in distance. walking distance you know you can um within shenton park you've got you know at the outer reaches you've got a five minute walk to the lake you've got a five minute walk to the shopping center and the post office and the iga yeah and possibly to work that's the point possibly, right yes if you're working in that area i mean yes. you could be walking in to Rockaby Road or Hay Street and work yes. as, a, as a professional yes. uh, or you could be walking into the hospital. Yes, but also, you know, you do get um, some residents who work in the city too so you can catch the, the, the cat bus, you know, on Thomas Road into the city. Yeah, so that's very convenient. Mm. You, you mentioned the lure of the schools there, Rosalie and Shenton. That has to be, I guess, something that uh, brings in a cycling of, of owners who come in with young families and stick around and then possibly downsize once the kids are out of Shenton College. That's right. And that's where the transition possibly from Shenton Park to Daglish, Subiaco, they, you know, people move within the four suburbs and it's giving them different options at, at different periods of their life. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And we see that in a number of areas around Perth where I mentioned this last week with Mark Anderson talking about how uh, there is, a, I guess, a natural progression between suburbs within wards. Mm. For example, Michael Jennings, who we, I spoke to uh, a few months ago about Canning Highway Ward. You might go from Melville to Adderdale to Bicton yeah. sort of thing, right? It'd be a natural progression as you go through life and, uh, and your finances change and your lifestyle change. So, same thing with, you know, for example, in Nedlands, Dale Keith or a Claremont, something like that, you'd move along or it might go from Shenton Park into Nedlands and then Dalkeith. Mm. And the other way around too when you want to downsize yeah. and have things within walking distance. So it's interesting to note that there is still that sort of internal circle there between the, what is offered in places like Douglas, Shenton Park, Subiaco and Jollymont. Mm. They're very much cycling from a hip lifestyle to a family lifestyle to a, a very quieter. much a quieter lifestyle mm. where there are different aspects about where you work that you can live. They say that most people when they're moving house regardless of their stage in life will move within five kilometres of their original residence. Yeah, it's very true mm. and, and mm. look, I think this is the 85th or 86th suburb spotlight we've done and that, that rings true with nearly every suburb is that most people will grow up in a suburb and look to buy back into that suburb at some point in their life. Yes. Very yeah, interesting, yeah. that fact. So and whether it, it just shows that whilst we're all becoming much more global people, we all like our little comfort, hobbit hole. Comfort <laughs> in the memories or comfort in the in the familiarity. Yeah, the nostalgia yeah, as well. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's talk price points. I can't imagine there is a great variance in price point given most of the properties are of a similar age and a similar lot size well you i mean your lower quartiles around about the 950 mark but then the median's about 1.1 and so it is very dense it is very dense then your upper quartile average is about 1.5 but then of course you know you do have properties which are two mil to three mil based on the, the house value yeah and particularly around the lake obviously because that's prime real estate in shenton park okay uh, i mean look it's a very green 
suburb as well. Lots yeah, of trees. Lots of trees. So I can imagine that, uh, yeah, if you can add some water and some park there as well, that just mm. tops it off. But what it does for me is it, it, it signposts a very uh, accessible price point for those people looking to enter the, the gateway of the western suburbs. Just as we spoke about last week, it very much can be a decision, I guess, these days of do I spend an extra three, four, 500 grand going into Netherlands or do I start in Shenton Park, get my foot in the door and then move up from there? I think that's a, it's a really useful spot that looks to the same complementary amenities. And you'd probably know more than me, but I, or give me another point of view, because I'm finding that over the years, there's a trend for younger couples to not so much want your bigger blocks, your 1,012 square metres, but want your smaller blocks with less backyard, less maintenance, because everyone's time poor. So, you know, even professionals with kids. I actually asked a few people the question a, a few years ago and said, you know, why, why don't you want a bigger backyard? And they said, well, Susie, you know, we both work. On the weekends, we've got kids sport. We don't want to be spending time in the garden. Mm. We can go down the lake. We can go to Rosalie Park. It's just a, a, a lifestyle choice. I mean, of course, there are still obviously those people who do want the bigger blocks, but it seems to me to be to becoming lesser depending on, on the lifestyle. And that's a great uh, middle point that that is offered there a 480 square meter block is still a sizable block especially if you have a two-story house on there oh absolutely you've still got a bit of space at the backyard for the young sort of toddler to be learning their first steps and running around in circles with the you know with their small family dog well that's it and with architecturally designed homes on smaller lots it's going to become easier to have a family home on on a much smaller lot Let's talk development opportunities, subdivision, those options. There's not that much that pops into mind on my side of the equation when I see it and I'm scouring the, the web or on and off market in Shenton Park. Do you no, have any insights? No, it's because of the size of the blocks. Uh, there's a, uh, a few you know, larger blocks, but the main development is mainly along Railway Road, which is stands to reason because you would allow development along a railway line. So you are fairly safe in purchasing in Shenton Park and knowing that you're not going to have a multi-res next to you in five years' time. Yeah, you'd be... Uh, pretty good deal maker to be able to acquire two or three or four blocks together to be able to get something done I think. Yeah absolutely I mean to have three or four owners agree to sell at the right price at the same time in a much sought after suburb. With hardly any sales per year anyway. Yeah. 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 And look the zoning doesn't allow for any sort of multi-res around most of the suburb anyway. No. No. So I, I think that's a great another great point is you've got a very protected suburb there that uh, gives you a, a level of confidence for the you know foreseeable future, that next phase of your life, whether it's 10 to 15 years sort of thing, that things will be as they are. Yes. And I you can invest so. into that. I think, and it's like anything in property, it's always proximity, proximity to amenities that is a safe investment. So family stronghold, really no development, no subdivision, not much in terms of sales or movement really in the suburb, but one that offers a lot of qualitative reasons why uh, given the, the tightly held nature of the supply of the suburb, has demonstrated for a time over the last few years some resilience and strength in the market compared to other suburbs. It really hasn't dropped that much. No, for example, and, and there is a big demand for the suburb. I recently, in the last two weeks, sold a property in Derby Road, had 67 buyers to the first home open, wow. multiple offers and obviously under offer that weekend. So there's a big demand and always buyers wanting to get in before you launch and, and that sort of thing because they 
recognise the value of the suburb. Yeah, understandable. Uh, look, let's talk uh, finally on the median house price. Do you have it for us? Median house price was 1.1. All right, so yep. 1.1 on the dot. What would Susie Costanzo be buying with 1.1 mil in her handbag today? I would be buying any property really, not on a main arterial, unless it was Onslow Road or Nicholson Road, because those properties are close to amenity. Would you prefer the hospital side or the Subiaco side? Probably the Subiaco side, because then it gives you walking distance to either Shenton Park or Subiaco. That's just a personal preference, because I do also have a lot of demand from the medical community who prefer the hospital side. But isn't that fantastic that there really is no right or wrong answer in that suburb? No. Every which way you go, whether it's east, you're going to Kings Park, if that's what you, you know, what's important to you. If it's south, it's the hospital. If it's west, you're next to the train station. And if it's north, you're walking distance to Subiaco. Every yep. way you go, there is a right answer for you based on your personal situation. Well, that's it. And also, if you're wanting your bigger blocks, you just go a step across the railway to Daglish. Yeah. And that offers the same amenity. I love that. Very good plug for uh, <laughs> the rest of your suburbs. Susie, thank you very much, mate. I appreciate you coming in. We'll have you in again soon, I'm sure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!